our top priority is patient safety. Second is data and scientific quality. And our value proposition is speed. It's, it's truly not the cost in the moment. Where we save people a, a lot of capital is if we save a biotech or a pharma company six months of time, that can be measured in patent extension, or if the drug is not approved, it can be measured in millions of dollars just from running the trial. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Raised in a small town in Maine and passionate about infectious diseases in the developing world, Noah Kraft may not seem like your typical health tech entrepreneur, but on today's show, we'll hear how he's channeled his passions into Science 37, a high-flying startup that brings clinical trials to patients. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Chaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So, Lisa. So, David. Yes. Um, so, one of the things I actually was really hoping we can talk a little bit about is I loved your read. Well, I love so much of your writing, but in this particular, you had a provocative reason post, um, essentially lamenting the current state of digital health because there was a report saying, "Look at all this great funding, we're winning," um, and then you sort of said that um, to quote you, "Companies are proliferating like bunnies on Valentine's Day," <laughs> <laughs> and you were worried about quote too many damn companies. <laughs> Do you want to add that? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, I think that the intersection of technology and health is a good thing, hence this podcast. Um, but I think that it's become almost too easy to start a company, and so many of them seem like clones of each other. And it's very hard, I think, for, for people to figure out which is going to be a winner. I mean, if you see 700 population health companies in a year, which one is the good one? The one with AI. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and blockchain. So, I mean, actually, that's one of the reasons I'm really interested in the company we're talking about today, Science 37, because it's quite unusual. And I mean, to me, that's the hallmark of something worth paying attention to. So to that point, um, a company that is getting a lot of traction is Science 37, and it was founded and led by today's guest, Noah Kraft. So welcome to the show, Noah. Oh, thanks. It's great to be on. So as we were just discussing, there are so many digital health companies scrapping for a touch of traction. In contrast, imagine that you're the CEO of a company waking up to this tweet from the tech-savvy CEO of Novartis. Travel time alone can be a major barrier for patients taking part in a clinical trial. Through our alliance with Science37, we are launching sightless trials to solve this problem and gather deeper insights into the patient experience that will drive medical innovation, end quote. And then Endpoint News reports that, quote, Novartis is pairing up with a Los Angeles tech company to launch 10 virtual clinical trials in which patients will use cell phones to participate rather than traveling to hospitals and clinics. And, end quote, adding the trials are set to begin later this year in the U.S. in dermatology, neuroscience, and cancer. So that's a lot on your shoulders, Noah. Um, we're keen to understand your journey, but this seems like uh, it may make sense to start right now. This is kind of a, kind of a big deal. Are you, are you guys ready to deliver on this? <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, it, it feels like a lot on our shoulders. It's, it's a big undertaking, but in honesty, um, I look at it as, we truly stand on the shoulders of giants before us. So what we do at Science 37 is, you know, we put together a few different uh, domains of expertise and a lot of different technologies in a way that's, you know, a really intense undertaking, as you said, 
So we stand on the shoulders of, of Apple and mobile device technology. We stand on the shoulders of, of cloud technology and, and AWS. And we stand on the shoulders of people who have tried different parts of this before. But what we're doing here at Science 37 is truly a massive undertaking, and it required domain expertise in telemedicine, technology, clinical trials, and <clears throat> most importantly, a direct-to-consumer brand and a focus around patient-centered trials. So the idea that you can truly bring the whole experience into someone's living room by using technology and telemedicine. Just for the audience that doesn't understand this um, or isn't savvy about clinical trials, can you explain just for a quick minute the difference between a standard clinical trial and what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So in a normal clinical trial, um, once it gets down to the patient level, how it works is there are a, a handful of experts around the country that work in hospitals, and only the patients that can get to that hospital can enroll in the trial. So if you're in a trial, typically you'd go in once a week or once a month to see the doctor and wait a few hours and then go home. So it limits it really to just people who can get to that, that doctor's office. Um, and what we do is we tip the equation upside down. We use technology to bring that experience home. So instead of building the clinical research around doctors, we, bring, we build the clinical research around the patient at home. And so we use telemedicine technology, a lot of shipping logistics, mobile nurses. Basically, we make your home and your living room into the trial site itself. Wow. And, um, you know, when I first heard about this, I just thought it was, you know, the idea of, oh, well, let's do clinical trials through an iPhone. You know, it sounds kind of, you know, you know cute. But then the clinical trials, there's such regulation and there's such rigor associated with them. To be able to deliver something that's going to be sort of pharma grade seems like a, uh, an incredible challenge. How did you go about approaching that? Yeah, well, when we started Science 37, you know, we were, we were normal clinical trialists or, you know, physician scientists. And um, Genentech reached out to us to see if we could possibly help them with this gigantic problem. And, you know, looking back, I can't believe that Genentech had the um, innovation nerve, if you will, to take the risk on a, a new group of people in a new company like this to do something so intense. But that's their philosophy is, you know, they, they bet they're risk tolerant and they bet on innovative things that can change the whole ecosystem. And so they asked us to help on this first trial. And, you know, in retrospect, if I knew how complicated and how intense it was going to be to build a company like this, uh, I might not have done it. But, um, <clears throat> you know, here, here we are today, uh, four years later, and um, have had a lot of successes. So let's talk about uh, about how you solve some of the problems. For example, I, you know, one thinks about, oh, the demographics, is that going to be an issue? What about people having different phones? But I guess one of the first things that you do is you provide everybody in your study with a phone, with all the software kind of already downloaded and working. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It was a That was an early decision based on economy and economy in the big sense of the word, um, which I'll explain it's it's really about democratizing the opportunity. So by providing everyone with a brand new iPhone who was in our trials, it means we didn't have to ask the question up front, do you have an iPhone? Do you have a, a good um, uh, service plan? All those questions go away when you make the decision to send the person a brand new iPhone. So our our whole mission is to truly democratize access. And if you give people the iPhone, well, technically we, we loan it to them for the duration of the trial. But that covers the economy of not wondering which software is on the phone, not wondering which iOS version or which phone they have at all or which plan. So 
it, it, it was a decision around economy, not dollars. Um, it also allows you to be 100% sure that data privacy and the security of the data transmission is 100% bulletproof. So, Noah, when you talk about democratizing clinical trials, do you mean there's you know much greater diversity in the participants, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, age diversity? What, what is the real fundamental difference that you create besides convenience? Yeah, we... We mean uh, democratization to access, as you're implying, and it cuts across um, ethnicity, gender, age, but most importantly, it probably cuts across socioeconomic status and geographic um, diversity. So, and mostly what I'm talking about today is is within the U.S. We're expanding internationally um, over the next few years, and that will be a different type of diversity. But in the U.S., you know, there's urban um, patients and then there are rural patients there's people that have the ability and the means to travel, and there are people who don't. So socioeconomic status and geographic diversity are the top two, but it, those tend to cut across um, race and ethnicity as well, as you can imagine. But um, maybe to help provide a little bit of context, I, I'm not sure most folks are aware of just how you know, the, the pool of people who participate in typical clinical trials is such a tiny fraction of the overall people you know, of, of the population of the country or the people who would be potentially oh, yeah. eligible. Right. Do you want to, because I remember we had a conversation about that it really struck me because I was saying, well, wait about this situation that won't be addressed and this situation. And what I took away from our conversation was what a low bar it was to make an improvement on the existing system just because of the enormity of the unmet need. Could you explain that? Yeah, so there are a couple of factors you're drilling into with that, with that question. Um, one is the typical clinical trial research sites are, you know, the, the tippity-top academic centers like Stanford and UCLA and Harvard. These are the places where all the academic researchers are, and so a very small population of people have access to those centers, and it tends to not be um, as diverse a population um, as the general U.S. population. Um, so that that's one one factor, but if you do a survey and you ask sick people if they're interested in being in a clinical trial or willing, 90% of people say they're interested in being in a trial. But when you look at the data, less than 3% of the eligible people participate. And when you look at the clinical trials themselves, typically less than 5% of the participants are ethnic minorities. So it tells you that a very, very small population of people can get to the doctor or is aware of the doc- of the clinical trial or trust that system. And so we try to overcome all of that by democratizing the access and letting anyone anywhere participate from home. So can this replace other, tr- I mean, will this be the method of doing clinical trials going forward? Are there places where this will not work? Yeah. Or types of trials for this, which this will not work. It's a great question. We we believe that this could be applied immediately to about fifty percent of all clinical trials. Um, it will take a while to get there, but for sure, if you look at the reverse, there are some trials that it's just not a good idea to do at home. So, like what critical care studies, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's correct. So, so um, trials that wouldn't be a good idea to do at home are diseases that are really acute, like having an acute stroke and intervening on that. If you're having a stroke, you should go straight to the emergency room. If you're running a clinical trial on stroke intervention, you can do it in the emergency room. Um, And as you mentioned, diseases of critical care, like ventilator-acquired pneumonia, by definition, you're in the hospital. And so doing that at home is, is not possible as well. So those are some easy examples. But then there are some examples where, like certain neurological diseases, 
the actual assessment of the patient hinges on the specialist hands touching the patient and assessing their muscles. And so any any condition where the outcome measure requires the specialists themselves touching the patient, that's also not a great fit for this model currently. You could inve- you know envision a, a world where we send the specialist to the home as well, but that gets um, exceptionally expensive and there just aren't as many um, geographically located specialists that way. So I have to imagine this ra- rapidly or, or massively increases the speed of enrollment for trials. But does it also save money? It's a good question. It it does in some cases, um, in and it depends on how you measure the money that's saved. Um, so we measure we measure the just to back up our our true value proposition is speed as as you're ta- as you're mentioning. So our top priority is patient safety. Second is data and scientific quality, and our value proposition is speed. It's it's truly not the cost in the moment. Where we save people a, a lot of capital is if we save a biotech or a pharma company six months of time, that can be measured in patent extension, or it can, if the drug is not approved, it can be measured in millions of dollars just from running the trial. So moment by moment, sometimes this type of trial costs more, meaning mobile nurses in a patient's home cost more than nurses who are in a hospital. So at times, moment by moment, it costs more. But in general, it actually costs less. So if there's not a mobile nurse involved in the visit, you're saving a lot of people's time in that moment, and you're saving time on enrollment in the overall trial. I just think it's such an interesting approach. And, and you know, when you were asked any pharma company what what's sort of killing them, it's just it's enrollment, it's conducting clinical trials, it's limitations on what they're able to do. And so it's so exciting to watch um, uh how this is evolving. You know, one of the things that's sort of striking to me is, you know, reflecting, I, I, I can't imagine you ever imagined that you were going to wind up uh, in this place. I mean, you sort of, um, uh, you know, you weren't destined to be a clinical trialist when you grew up, as I understand it. You grew up in a uh, small town in Maine under often difficult financial circumstances. Is that right? That's correct, yep. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? There wasn't even a doctor in your town. You had to go to a, uh, there was a single doctor in a neighboring town, but you, you still discovered a passion for biology and medicine? Yeah, so I, I grew up in a very small town. Um, as you mentioned, there were no doctors. <laughs> um, so my, my doctor role model when I was growing up was a nearby town family doctor who took care of my grandparents, my parents, my nephews, my nieces. He was a team team doctor for the football team, et cetera. So very different type of role model. But, you know, those are the doctors out there in the world who are your normal practicing physician. When I got to college, um, I spent my first summer in a clinical trial research lab, actually. Um, I worked at the bench doing uh, molecular biology, but I also worked in the hospital with real clinical trial patients. And it was truly eye-opening to me. And it set my, it set my, um, perspective on there's the taking care of the patient moment and then there's the changing the future of medicine moment and so I, I got quite drawn into the into the um, the meaning and and the depth of science in the in the context of medicine so I ended up doing the MD PhD path which is you know truly a unique experience where you learn the language and process of medicine and the language and thought process of being a scientist and speaking both languages and thinking about what it means to, you know, do science in the context of medicine is very different than just practicing medicine. So 
that came at a very early uh, age for me. So it it sounds like when you were first doing your uh, you're in a translational research lab, and this is why you were uh, uh, at Brown. University, um, uh, you you sort of you had a real affinity for it, and you thought that that as much as you enjoyed the experience of being of of, of watching your small t- of of your sort of the small town doc as you described it, you realized that maybe it wasn't what you wanted to be, um, uh, and and that's when you sort of decided to kind of uh, pivot a little bit towards science um, or or um, you know sort of the PhD signal transduction, and you did this MD PhD program. Um, to to do this integrated career, you did your first two you know medical school years, which are you know mostly classwork, um, and then you started your first couple of years of a PhD, and 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 then things changed for you. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so you can imagine if my history is I was drawn to medicine from this uh, you know small town family doctor approach, and then was drawn to science, and then actually combined them in my training, um, you know two years into a PhD, your mind and all your thoughts are focused extremely narrowly on a reductionist thought process. And so two years in, you know, I was working on some really fascinating work in signal transduction and prostate cancer. Um, And, you know, after a couple of years of that, I had this a bit of an existential crisis where I wasn't sure why the science was important. And most people don't know this about me, but I actually... Uh, left my uh, PhD program and left medical school and drove through Mexico for five months in a pickup truck, um, really, you know, searching into the the meaning of what we do. Um, You know, I spent a lot of time with my guitar talking to the local folks in Mexico. And after a few months of doing that, you know, I went up the mountain and talked to the man on the mountain, so to speak, and realized, you know, the humanity of, of the science and why we actually have these scientific pursuits and why the truth matters. And so after that trip, I, you know, I went back and re-enrolled in medical school and finished my PhD. Was there a person or persons in Mexico that really, you know, sort of set you back on your heels that people, somebody that really was memorable for you in that, in that, you know, journey you were on? Um, I met a lot of people. I mean, the most transformative people were the average townsfolks. Uh, who taught me different Mexican songs on the guitar and, you know, taught me how to cook. And um, it was really the human experience. I think that's charged me ever since is, you know, why do we do all these things? It's for the actual people. Um, It's not for fame. It's not for, you know, the scientific uh, curiosity. It's for the actual people that are our communities. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so people that, you know, drive, uh, you know, an American driving through Mexico in a pickup truck, um, these communities take you in and, you know, teach you different perspectives on life. And it was that, that, that led me back to realize why it's so profoundly important to, um, invest my own time and energy on things that will improve their lives. Well, I think it's so, uh, it's such a courageous story for you to be able to share. Um, I, I, I suspect from you know many folks uh, you know trying to do research, and certainly from my own experience, I mean it's a crazy path going back and forth from you know this the the clinical part where you're anticipating, and, and it's the whole wonderful part of it is your connection with people, to then this ultra reductionist research, um, and I, I think I must have felt a lot of very similar things. I'm not sure I responded as constructively, um, but it's uh, it's 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 just so interesting in that you were able to kind of collect, you know, sort of figure it out somehow, this on his sort of vision quest thing, and to come back and with sort of a sense of purpose, that's, 
that's just that's just such a, a, a that's so profound to me that you were able to do that and then and that you did that and then um, maybe you know to sort of to, um, to to sort of to continue with the story. I know you finished your PhD, um, you know, in med school, and then you um, initially pursued an academic interest in derm, but focused not on pimple popping, but rather on diseases of the developing world, which, as you've said, and as I've confirmed with my wife, also an infectious <laughs> disease doctor, uh, often do manifest on the skin. Even so, my top of mind association is to that Seinfeld episode. How's the life saving business? It's fine. It must take a really, really big zit to kill a man. Is with you. You call yourself lifesaver. I call you pimple popper, MD. <laughs> Mr. Perry, how are you? I just want to thank you again for saving my life. She saved your life? I had skin cancer. Skin cancer. <laughs> so even, even with uh, even with skin cancer, um, which which dermatologists, uh, as Seinfeld pointed out, uh, do uh, are involved with, um, uh, but even even but that wasn't really what drew you to pursuing derm. It sounds like how did you go from this sort of training and this sort of background to um, wind up at Science Thirty Seven? Yeah. To, so to jump from my training to um, to Science Thirty Seven, which is over a decade, but I'll do it in thirty seconds. Um, you know, I, I spent some time in Brazil training in infectious disease hospitals and, and fell in love with the, the host parasite immunology um, uh, question and focused most of my energy in, in my lab on developing vaccines for parasites like leishmaniasis, which is the number two killer of people, be, uh, protozoan killer besides malaria. Most people in the U.S. haven't heard of it, but it's an extremely important problem worldwide. So I spent a few years <clears throat> working on that, and um, to be honest, like the eight years I spent um, working in my lab and developing vaccines and immunotherapies, um, we developed a lot of successful things, and I think we have about six patents of what we thought would be really effective therapies um, for, as vaccines or therapies for cancer. Um, and along the way, started to realize what happens to these inventions or these discoveries. And you, you're forced with looking at the world very differently, like what it takes to discover something is one thing, what it takes to commercialize it and bring it actually to the people is a whole other path. And so that, that, that became this focus when, when Genentech asked me four years ago to help solve this problem of clinical trials. Initially, I wasn't, I wasn't personally very interested in it, but when you ask the question, what happens to your own discoveries after you discover them, you realize that what we were trying to solve for Genentech is the same problem that the individual scientist has with how do you commercialize um, drugs or discoveries more effectively. I just so resonate with this, Noah. I, I can't even, t I, I feel like I've written about how like entrepreneurship is sort of like the distillation of the translational impulse. And I feel like that's not just what you're expressing, but what you're living. Yeah, that's right. I mean, to, to start Science 37, it meant closing down my lab and, and really focusing on a very different problem, which, you know, leaves the scientists and me a little uh, hung out in the cold. Um, but we decided, a group of us, I don't want to take credit, um, it's my co-founder, Belinda Tan, another MD-PhD, and a group of scientists, doctors, lawyers, technologists, none of, like, not none of it, but a lot of this is, is a, a group effort. But what we, what we decided was to step out of our lives <clears throat> and build a platform that could be used by all scientists, including ourselves. So in some ways, we, we built this company, this platform to accelerate 
drug discovery and, and therapy discovery um, for uh, biotech companies and pharma. But when you really get down to it, we built this platform and this company for ourselves and for all individual scientists because an individual scientist can call us and we can help them reach hundreds of patients or thousands of patients across the country much more easily than you can in the current system. So in some ways we're we're doing we believe we're doing the world a service by developing a platform or an infrastructure that can be used by anyone. So you've come up with this term um, in your work called website manner, which I think is so fun, uh, comparing obviously to bedside manner. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Yeah, so <clears throat> we hadn't touched on it, but um, before we started Science 37, a group of friends, most of us MD-PhDs, um, started a company called Direct Derm, which is um, I believe the largest teledermatology company, private teledermatology company in the U.S. now. And so we started this company um, a little precociously before telemedicine was really come of age. But we learned in that the types of doctors that are comfortable and good at taking care of patients through telemedicine or it, it, through a computer, if you will, it's a very different type of practice, both the decision-making, the comfort with a different set of data, a slightly different relationship with the patient. It's a really different type of physician that would do that, and it's a really different type of practice. And so we invested a lot of energy at Direct Derm into training our doctors how to have a proper website manner. And that <clears throat> it's not just about how you practice, it's about how you take care of the customer. So we started thinking about our patients much more as customers and delivering a much better customer service um, approach, really focusing on what the experience is for the patient. We believe both at Science37 and at Direct Derm that the empowered consumer can make choices in their healthcare and who they see. And so to get out in front of that and make sure your doctors and your staff, your coordinators, your medical assistants who take care of patients through the web are trained in understanding the culture of, you know, being in a patient's home. Like, you, you know, in, when we're doing this, we're, we have a video stream right into a patient's home. So as opposed to normally when a patient's sitting in your office, that's your world, the physician. When we're taking care of patients at home, you see their dogs running around, you get to know their children who are in the picture. It's a really different type of practice, and it, and we really focus on, um, treating the empowered consumer as the choice maker. All right. No. So you're describing this sort of, um, you know, this sounds like idealized vision of, you know, oh, you're telemedicine, and which sounds a little bit like a house visit, and you get to know them and all of this stuff. Knowing people who've been involved with telemedicine, the flip of it is you're trying to get a touch of mind share from people who are contacting you when, when they're driving, when they're doing other things. And, you know, there's a whole other side to this too. I mean, when people are in, are in the clinic, there's captive in some way um, and uh, or focused, depending on how you want to look at it. Whereas when you, you know, the good news is you really do get a flavor for folks' lives. But the flip of it is, you know, the, the mind share question, um, how, do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, it's probably different in different telemedicine situations. Um, at Science 37, you know, the intensity of the visit is, is quite focused. So, you know, there are scheduled visits many of them include a mobile nurse being in the home um, as well as our coordinator and our doctor being in the visit at the same time. So it's quite a focused experience um, over a period of hours in some cases. It's, it's not like they're driving around um, in a car. 
Um, like I think a few, you know, some versions of telemedicine are a little bit more flippant or um, kind of chaotic. Ours are ours are quite focused and rigorous as far as every little thing we do is regulated and tracked, and um, so it's it's quite a focused experience. Um, that makes sense. So now I want to ask you, you know, you're um, building a company that's considered a really high flyer out in the venture community. I know you've, you know, raised a lot of money and done a lot of pitches and had uh, tremendous success on that front. What's it like for you coming across from the science world, coming across from the medical world, you know, to dealing with this this world of uh, business-focused venture capitalists? How has that been? Yeah, it's, it's been an exciting experience for me. Um, I treat, you know, start, starting the company was a whole new challenge and experience. And I swear every year, the size of the company and the challenges and the types of investors are getting bigger and bigger and, you know, in some ways more intense. But our approach to the whole thing has always been the same. Like we have a mission and we have a vision. Our vision is crystal clear to us where we want this company to go. And you can read all the books you want about how to do a deck or how to pitch this or that. My approach is just I get up and I'm a scientist. Like my whole life, you get up on stage and you talk about your work and people ask you the hardest of the hard questions in science. And if you can't defend them, then that's your problem, not theirs. So I just like to get up in front of people and talk about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think that's compelling. Um, the biggest question is, you know, are you the, that like the ideas and the mission and vision are one thing. And then the biggest question is, are you the people and the team that can pull it off? Um, <clears throat> because I think this, this exact question yeah, that is people. and the solution has been out there for a while. Um, we didn't dream up everything we're doing here. We just happen to be the right set of people at the right time to pull it off. And it's not an easy thing to pull off combining these highly regulated domains um, with technology. But I, I, you know, I think it's a combination of, you know, just being honest and genuine about our mission. And I think people believe from our track record that we are the people that can pull it off. So it might be different than a normal pitch to normal VCs, um, and I don't know if people should follow my lead, but that's how, that's how I've been approaching it. <laughs> Are there normal VCs? Only abnormal VCs. <laughs> well, no, this is um, uh, this is terrific. We're so grateful you were able to join us. It's fascinating to watch what you've done evolve, and you know the scientific roots, the focus on translation, the entrepreneurship as translation. You're sticking to your vision, your evolution. Um, it's such an exciting story, and we're so grateful to you for sharing it with us today. Great to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. All right. I, you know, it's so interesting, not just what he's doing, but um, in terms of an area where there's such a need of being able to sort of figure out how to make clinical trials better. As he was saying at the very end, it's not like people didn't realize there was a need here or even think that maybe iPhones could do it or you know, mobile, whatever, but figuring out how to actually make it work and all of the, you know, um, all of the stuff from actually getting the nurses to, sh- you know, yeah. sort of well, like this is a logistics nurses, company more logis- than it is anything else, right? In some ways, I think it's so interesting. That's a great summary. It's a logistics company more than yeah. anything else. That's, um, I think that's the tagline. All right, well, <laughs> <laughs> please remember to rate us on iTunes so that other um, uh, interested listeners can find us. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform 
that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Take care of yourselves. Take care. Thank you.